let's face it. Whether you're hiring or trying to find work today, the process has become tougher than ever. Between ghost listings, AI-powered applicant tracking systems, chat GPT-written cover letters, and other wild employment scams, how do you know if your resume, your application, or your job posting is even being seen by an actual human? That's why we've relaunched our job board to help you find your next opportunity. And if you're a company that's hiring right now, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of podcast listeners for just $99. Get started with us and expand your job search or your recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts BFA Design and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. But in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Tolu Adigbite. Tolu is an inclusive designer located in Toronto, Ontario, and is currently working on accessibility design at Meta. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, um, my name is Tolu Adegvita. I'm a product designer um, currently in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I work on inclusive design. Right now I work at Meta, um, specifically working on Facebook, the design system and making that as inclusive as possible. Nice. How has your year been going so far? My year so far has been really interesting. I think uh, this year started off kind of tough. There were a lot of just layoffs happening in tech. I felt like Everywhere I looked on social media, there were just like a lot of a lot of sad messages, layoffs, people having to really um, reject their lives. So I kind of took a step back. I got rid of 
most of my social media accounts, which is kind of ironic seeing as I work for a social media company, but really needed to take some time out to get in a better headspace because of all the the tough stuff that was going on. But now I'm definitely feeling um, a lot more optimistic. I feel like things are turning around. So I'm feeling good about the year from uh, here on out. Well, look, I can tell you as someone that also was laid off (laughs) during that time, I know what you mean about sort of retreating from social media and just seeing all of that as it takes place. Because, I mean, there was a period last year where I felt like there were layoffs happening every week for like a few months and not in small numbers either. It's like 200 people here, you know, a thousand people here. And it's it can be super demoralizing, especially if you're somewhere and you've survived a layoff like that, that survivor's guilt. It's bad. And social media just compounds upon it. Absolutely. I totally agree. I know so many people who experience the same thing, but for the people who weren't laid off, there definitely is that survivor's guilt looking around, realizing that it could have just as easily have been you. Um, it was a really yeah. unusual way to start the year, especially given last year was the complete opposite. Everyone and their dog had gotten a new job and was talking about it on mm-hmm. LinkedIn. And also, you know, and this is, you know, independent of sort of talks about layoffs, like social media as a concept has been in a tailspin this year, particularly with the advent of new services. And we'll we'll talk about threads. But like with the advent of new services and stuff like that, it's causing a lot of people to sort of reexamine their relationship to social media. Like, we'll just talk about it. Twitter is crumbling <laughs> at the moment. And people are, are looking at all these different alternatives to possibly go to, you know, it could be on Spill, they could go on Blue Sky, they could go on Mastodon, etc. And it's causing some people to say, you know what, what if I just divest altogether from social media and not use any of these new platforms. It's, it's an interesting time to be a, a social media user, I think. It definitely is. I feel like for so long, it's been a source of a lot of community. I am a chronic lurker. So for years, I would lurk on Twitter without ever having an account. But mm-hmm. I don't think you can even do that anymore. I, I definitely can't see accounts now that I'm not currently on Twitter. So definitely an interesting time. Definitely more difficult to look in from the outside if you are also a chronic lurker like I am. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, Twitter's becoming a walled garden. Some of these other places are similarly like that, where maybe you can only see a couple of things, but you have to join. And it would be one thing if the social media were more inherently social, but then it's like tied up with algorithms and data collection. And you're just like, I just want to talk to my friends and see what they're doing and look at cute pictures and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, especially since the pandemic, I think social media started being a major source of interaction for me during those what, like years that we couldn't really do much in Ontario. Um, our laws were pretty intense about, about lockdown. There was a point in time where you couldn't even leave your apartment. You couldn't go outside with anyone who you didn't live with. So social media was pretty much as much as I interacted with my friends and uh, people that I knew. Yeah. What do you want to try to accomplish for the rest of this year? I've been thinking a lot about my mindset and perspective on my career I'm going to keep it short, but ultimately, I think as a Black woman growing up in this country, I've learned to present like kind of a palatable version of myself. And I realize in the work world, it doesn't always translate to where I want to go in my career. And I'm having to show up differently. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that. And um, I'm really focused on my career this year, where I want it to go and um, how I think my skill set can kind of propel my career forward. 
Can you like expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of those people who I think lived in a fantasy land when I was a kid. I was in my head so much. So I, I really remember my childhood very well. And I remember like as far back as grade one, grade two, sitting in class feeling like I had to be really, really good. I don't think I could put it to words back then, but there definitely was this feeling that in order for me to not be seen as a problematic child, that I had to present myself in a certain way. I had to be super smart. I had to always be raising my hand and giving answers. I had to be super nice to the people in my class. I just had to be Mm -hmm. the best student, a model student. And I've definitely taken that through with me today. I feel like I'm a compulsive people pleaser. And that doesn't really translate well into the workplace, especially when you want to take on leadership roles. Mm. Yeah. These companies will drain everything out of you and ask for more. So I know exactly what that feeling can be like of always trying to make sure that you're showing up in the right way and doing the right things. And oftentimes, even if you're doing that, just how you're presented in the workplace, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have a a good effect, which can be a bit jarring. I think especially if you're like early in your career, it can be a bit jarring because everything that you've been sort of told and seen has been to that point where like, that's what you're supposed to do. Like that's what you're being told that you have to present and do. And then you get in the workplace and they're like, eh, not so much. It, it doesn't necessarily translate that way. Yeah. Especially starting my career out as a developer, I definitely did not think about this stuff nearly as much, but I feel like as a designer, half of your craft is just how you show up. You could have the most amazing ideas and innovative, I don't know, ideas for apps and ideas, but if you don't show up in the right way, if you're not confident, no one is really going to to take your idea on board as well as if you show up in a in a certain way, which is really interesting to me. Half of this job is just how you present yourself. Mm, yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm thinking of like ten to fifteen years ago when conversations around Black folks in technology, particularly around like this new area of tech with you know social media and stuff like that, and how those conversations that went about and how people are trying to present themselves and making sure that you were a part of all this. It's kind of amazing that even now, after all of that, that these are still sort of such big concerns because company culture, trust me when I tell you this, company culture has changed a lot, like a lot, a lot since then. But yet these are still kind of these pervasive things that, you know, mostly people of color have to deal with. Yeah. You know, now that you bring that up, I feel like life kind of exists as life before and after the pandemic, but similarly, um, life before and after George Floyd. And I think I saw a complete kind of change in in how I think about work and what we're allowed to say, what we're not allowed to say after that. I, I feel like that completely changed my career. Um, it was recent, but a lot of conversations have happened since then. A lot of conversations that I don't think would have happened before George mm. Floyd. I'm curious about this because you're in Canada. And granted, you know, what you're mentioning, like with George Floyd and things, this is like, I wouldn't say it's a uniquely American issue, but certainly it's something that people worldwide have been able to to resonate with. I'm just kind of curious from, you know, you being from Canada, growing up in Canada, and now having to sort of hear about these issues and see how it affects your workplace. Like, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I, I think growing up in Canada is really interesting. Our proximity to the U.S. makes it so that sometimes I'm more aware of American news than I am of Canadian news. Mm-hmm. Our Canadian news sources are definitely talking about American news. But we definitely felt it up here too. I think there's this perception that these are problems that are unique to America. They're really not. 
whenever I go to the US and I meet Black folks, one thing that really strikes me is that very often I'm asked, is there racism in Canada? And it really breaks my heart in a way that like the thought of Black Americans is like, is there a place out there where this doesn't exist? And the answer is no, it exists up here too, but it's definitely a different brand. I think Canadian culture kind of makes it more covert. It's less um, out there than it is in America, but we definitely had those conversations. Definitely was a reckoning here too, but probably not to the extent that Americans dealt with. Mm. Well, I'm not going to stay on this. This is not a <laughs> this is not a a nationalist podcast about you know issues like this. I want to talk about you and your work. So let's go into that. So you're a product designer at Meta. Tell me more about kind of the work you're doing there. You mentioned you're on the the sort of Facebook product. Like, talk to me about that. I know that when Meta came out as a brand, there was some confusion, but I'll just explain it for folks who are listening. Meta is the parent slash umbrella company that is an umbrella over Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, Threads, Reality Labs, all that stuff. So um, Meta is the parent company over Facebook. So yes, I work at Meta, but specifically mostly on Facebook at this moment in time. And it's it's been really interesting. I think there's a very specific external perception, and uh, we're not going to talk about that too much. But I will say working at Facebook, at Meta, one thing that I've been really, really surprised by is just the amount of attention that's paid to accessibility and inclusive design. It's definitely a bigger topic here than it's been probably anywhere else I've worked, which is really incredible. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I'm excited that I, I'm here at this point in my career that I don't have to fight and explain why what I do is important. And we're just getting to the work and trying to make these products as accessible and inclusive as possible. Tell me more about like, what does a, a typical day look like for you? Like, are you working with a team? Are you working remotely in the office? Like, what does that look like? So I work remotely from Toronto. There are uh, several of us here, but not a lot. Most of my coworkers are in the US on the West Coast in California. But a typical day looks like it looks like a lot of conversations with the design systems team. Accessibility falls under that team. We do a lot of the typical stuff. We do crits. We talk about components. We talk about the future of our design system. But we spend a lot of time actually thinking about how to make these things, considering the largest number of people. When you work on a product that touches billions of people, it really is a huge consideration. It's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about. Now. I know you mentioned you're not going to get too much into Facebook stuff. Um, we're, we're not going <laughs> to we're not going to dive into that too much. But on the show a couple of episodes ago, I talked with Kevin Tuft. He's a product designer. He works, I think, he works more so on the Instagram side from what he mentioned to me. But when we had talked before, this was prior to the release of Threads, which is an Instagram app very similar to Twitter in that it's sort of this microblogging platform that you can. You can basically like put out, I mean, I'm saying tweets, but you can put out these, these small posts. It's connected in a way to Instagram and that you can share to and from things like that. And that just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's had massive appeal. I think there's up to 30 million plus people that join within the first 24 hours or so. Knowing that, like, what is the internal mood at Facebook like? Because Facebook has taken some knocks. They've had layoffs. There's been the whole thing about the metaverse, et cetera. But now it seems like Facebook's got like a win in the win column. Like, what's it like there now? Yeah, you know, internally, the, the feeling is really optimistic. There's some really tangible excitement. 
And that's a really nice feeling, especially after, you know, how things have been in the tech industry lately. You can tell people are really excited and it's awesome. So many people are um, trying it out themselves, wanting to test, wanting to dog food, kind of to, to make sure everything's working as it should. So it feels really awesome to see that kind of excitement. And it definitely is energizing. Does any of your work deal with threads in any way? Not so much. It's mostly falling under Instagram. So they kind of do their thing, but they're definitely um, our conversations, especially when it comes to inclusive design concepts. I'm going to be really interested to see how threads and like uh, these other similar services are going to play out in the market over the next few years. It's not the first time that there have been a number of Twitter-like clones that have come out trying to unseat Twitter. And I think I mentioned this Actually, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show. I might have mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, but right around like 2006, 2007, when Twitter was starting to sort of come out of its quote unquote beta phase, but it was becoming more popular and more well known, there were a number of other services that tried to compete for that same market share. There was Yammer, there was Pounce, Jaiku. Oh God, it's uh, Plurk. That's what it was. Plurk is another one. And they were all kind of trying to, you know, sort of compete for that. That same space of like, we also want to be a microblogging platform. And this is prior to, you know, what people know of Twitter as now. This was 2007 because Twitter had pivoted from this podcasting startup. Actually, I don't know if a lot of people know that. It started out as this podcasting startup called Odeo, O-D-E-O. And then they pivoted into this sort of microblogging-esque platform around 2006. So I'm just curious to see how they will fare because a lot of those services now got bought by bigger companies and then they shut them down or they're just super popular in other countries and not so much here in the US. I know people are trying to like migrate to Threads, migrate to Blue Sky, migrate to Mastodon, etc. I'm still kind of taking a wait and see approach to see where the masses go or where the conversation or really where the, where the culture ends up moving towards. I mean culture in a broader sense, not just like black folks, but where the the general internet culture is going to migrate towards because it, it eventually will settle honestly into one one place like it's not going to be i think as splintered as it is right now i hope that happens you know for the culture i really do miss black twitter that was amazing i don't know if it's still happening because i can't see twitter but, um, <laughs> i i would be really happy if there was kind of everyone ended up kind of in the same space that would really be uh, ideal for me first yeah only time will tell. I think it's it's way too early now for anyone to really be able to pontificate on who's going to quote unquote win. Still still a little early to tell. Yeah, we can check back in in a bit and see where where this all ends. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, Facebook's coming up on its 20th anniversary next year. What do you think their place is now in this modern internet age? Yeah, this interesting yeah, thought. I definitely remember when Facebook became a thing when um probably when I was in elementary school, high school maybe. It's interesting to see how it's progressed now, how the audience has kind of like grown and changed and shifted. I think Mark Mark Zuckerberg has has been really good historically. He's made a lot of good bets. Uh, things are going really well. He's invested in the right places, and I think going forward, it's it's still going to remain like a, a powerhouse. Like there are billions of users. There's a really big international presence, and I don't think that's necessarily going to change. My great aunt uses WhatsApp. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, but I, I think we'll definitely continue to see maybe things change, but I, I don't I don't really foresee it, I don't know, going anywhere anytime soon. 
Yeah, that international presence is key. And also, you know, there's all these other products that are not just Facebook. You mentioned WhatsApp. I know there's like different versions of Facebook in other countries like Facebook yeah. Lite, et cetera. And it's not the number one website in the world by accident. Like Facebook is in some places, Facebook is the internet. So to kind of, I guess, you know, prematurely call it dying, like I've, I've heard a lot, certainly here in the US, like Facebook's everywhere. Yeah, it's growing and changing. I think Threads is um, a really big testament to the team being willing to kind of go where um, the audience needs them to grow with with the audience and the, and the base. So that's pretty awesome to see. Well, seeing that, you know, Facebook has that global footprint, let's talk more about what you do in terms of like accessibility. Can you kind of touch on how your work affects different products at Facebook? So I started out as a developer, like I mentioned before, kind of fell into right out of school working on on web accessibility. So finding accessibility issues, fixing them. So when I say accessibility issues, I mean things like color contrast. If you go on a website and you can't see the text because the color contrast is too low or um, visible focus indicators. If you're pressing the tab button to navigate through a form and you can't see where your cursor is. So things like that eventually morphed into working on it from the product design angle. But it's been really energizing to come here and see that this is a focus area and be able to work on these parts of the app design system before they make it to people and starting at that stage. So um, there's a small but passionate team working on that. And I kind of see my role on that team as coming from external places that that talked about web accessibility and, and tried fixing it, working on it in multiple different ways. But these days, one of the things I'm really most passionate about is inclusive design and specifically like what intersectionality means in the context of all of all these things. Talk about that a bit more. Yeah. So um, I'll tell you how I started thinking about that. Um, I worked at Shopify um, a few years ago. And while I was there, I wanted an article for the blog. I I can't really remember why it came to mind. Probably still the fallout of um, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests in the US. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking a lot about what this means for accessibility. So um, there's this awesome woman. She wrote this book called even the deafblind woman who conquered Harvard. She was the first deafblind person to ever graduate from Harvard Law, which is a pretty massive deal in part because before she started at Harvard Law, there were not materials that existed for a deafblind person to make it through the program, right? Like they didn't have access to like Braille for all their materials. They didn't have necessarily like interpreters, things like that. And she got through it. I was really touched by her story, but also her social media presence. She talks a lot about her experience as a deafblind woman who is of African descent. She made a post in particular um, talking about how when she interacts with other blind people, they almost always assume that she's white. And that Mm. really got me thinking, why is that? It got me thinking, especially someone who works in inclusive design, about things like alternative text. So, um, you know, when you go on a website and the image is broken and you see uh, like a little bit of text, like, dog. You see that text if someone has put an alternative text attribute, which basically is what um, someone using something like a screen reader would hear when their screen reader hits that image. They would hear whatever alternative text you put on it, if you put any. And oftentimes, if a website even has alternative text, it's very basic. Let's say we go on a news website and there's, a I don't know, a picture of a farmer. It might say farmer standing on a field. But it won't really say anything about what the farmer looks like typically 
when we do that, I guess in a society where white is kind of the majority is seen as the default, you kind of implicitly are sending the message that this person is white, right? Yeah, it just, it really got me thinking. I, I noodled on that for a really long time. And I t- thought about my own experiences. In elementary school, I was one of those kids who would beg to stay inside at recess. So I'd go to the library and read by myself. I read a lot of books and I actually didn't read a single book with a black man character, probably until middle school. And up until that point, I kid you not, I just assumed that people didn't write books about black people. Like it never even occurred to me that I just wasn't coming across books with black man characters for a reason. Mm. And so I was like, okay, this is absolutely an accessibility issue. Let's write an article about it. And I did. And initially, um, actually, it's a little bit controversial. It initially was not approved to be published, which was interesting. But (laughs) eventually, the editorial team was like, okay, we'll publish it. But my one condition was, okay, we cannot publish it during Black History Month. I'm not going to publish this during Black History Month because I don't want this to be like a topic that we relegate to Black History Month and never again. But um, I wrote that article and it was the first time I've ever gotten hate mail. So uh, mm-hmm. believe it or not, some folks from the inclusive design community, I mean, I mean, I'm assuming it was those folks who are reading it. Some people made fake email accounts and just like sent me hate mail. And I was like, wow, this is kind of wild, kind of offensive. But I'm like, you know what? If this is upsetting people to the extent where they're sending me hate mail about it and telling me that race is irrelevant to people who are blind, then it means that I need to talk a lot more about it. Mm. Well, look, I can tell you as someone that has done a podcast where I talk to black designers, I can completely believe that you guys said hate mail because people are really shook by the acknowledgement of race. Like what you're saying is not pinpointing this on any specific person or people. You're saying like, this is a behavior that needs to be corrected for greater context. And then people are sending you hate because you want clarification. It's madness, but I completely, I can 100% believe that you got that, which I, I'm sorry to hear that you've gotten that, but unfortunately, I can believe it. Yeah, and I guess people had very strong reactions, but I guess working in accessibility, you kind of have these rose-colored glasses, or I did, thinking that, okay, this is a space where we're talking about exclusion. We're talking about people who are from marginalized groups. There absolutely should be a conversation about this. And I was really surprised that that conversation wasn't necessarily welcome, which tells me that the folks who have the loudest voices in this community are maybe from one marginalized group, but aren't seeing the intersection with others. Like the experience of a white woman who is blind is going to be very different from Black African immigrant who is blind, who is deafblind, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think having more conversations about that is really important, but I've just really learned that for some reason, these conversations have not been at the forefront of the inclusive design movement. That tells me I need to talk about it more. Do you think that it's getting better? I don't think I'm seeing enough conversations happen about it. The vast majority of people I know who work in inclusive design are white people. And I inherently, obviously, like the people who are going to talk about this issue the best are the people who've experienced it, right? So um, I think getting more Black folks in the inclusive design community will make it so that those conversations happen more often. But of course, people who don't experience kind of what happens at these intersections of like multiple marginalized identities, of course, they can't talk about it. They definitely shouldn't be silencing us either. Yeah. Now we've talked a lot about your work, what you're doing at Facebook, etc. Let's kind of shift gears and learn more about you as a person, as a designer. Tell me about where you grew up. Are you originally from Toronto? Yeah, so I was born in Nigeria um, in a place called Ilefe, 
And I moved here when I was about four years old. And I've lived in uh, the greater Toronto area, like Toronto, the the towns in in and outside of it ever since. So I, I definitely feel very Canadian. But at the same time, I think a lot about my culture. I, I still I speak Yoruba. My parents speak Yoruba to me. We're immigrants. And it's something that I, I think a lot about, even though I think people often don't read me as an immigrant, maybe because of my accent. I think it's still a very important part of my identity. Were you exposed to a lot of design and stuff growing up? You know, absolutely not. I did not think this was a job, which is why I started out as a developer. I felt like that's the closest I could get to making things online look nice. When I told my parents that I was going to do design, I think there was a bit of a, a freak. My mom was like, what are you going to design? Like like houses? There, there definitely was a disconnect in what that meant. But yeah, it's interesting uh, what design actually means on the inside. It's been really amazing. And uh, I think there's like nothing else I'd rather be doing. Now, you ended up going to the University of Toronto. Tell me about sort of like what your time was like there and whether it really kind of helped you once you got out there as a working designer. Yeah, I went to U of T for my undergrad. I studied psychology. U of T was the first university I kind of knew of in Toronto. There's like kind of this joke in the Nigerian community that um, U of T, for some reason, is like the only university Nigerian people in Nigeria know about. So when I was little, my dad would take us there, take us to downtown. And he asked me once when I was like maybe five or six years old, which university are you going to go to? And I looked around and we were at U of T. So I was like, I'll go to the University of Toronto. And then I, I kind of did. I think in my head, I, I thought it, I would always go there because it's just the one that I knew of. So uh, that was really interesting. I learned so much studying psychology, and it's probably very cliche because I know it's like one of the most common undergrads that people take. But I learned so much about myself and the way that I look at the world in classes like uh, sex roles and gender and uh, cultural psychology. I just completely shifted my worldview, how I think of things, especially as an immigrant. When my parents and I argue, I look at it from a cultural psychology lens. Why are we arguing? It's because our collectivistic versus individualistic outlooks on on the world are are colliding. So I think it definitely helps shift how I look at the world. And I think that's been really important as a designer to not singularly look at things from this individualistic lens, but think of things uh, from kind of alternate cultures will, will look at things. And I think I definitely live in between two cultures. So maybe it makes it a little bit easier to shift my mindset. And I would imagine, you know, kind of with the work you're doing, with inclusive design and accessibility, that psychology background is is probably super helpful. I'd like to think so. Um, I, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely try to look at it from that perspective. But um, ultimately, there's so many different disabilities that people have. You're never going to understand necessarily where all your users are coming from. So uh, I try to, I don't know, stay humble. Try to not fall into that all-knowing designer kind of stereotype. Well, I think at least it probably gives you some empathy into knowing Absolutely. what those you know, kind of different disabilities would be. So tell me about your early sort of post-grad career. I know you you ended up working for a publicist sapient as a product designer and as a developer, and you were there for a little over three years. Talk to me about what that experience was like. Yeah, so after undergrad, I was like, okay, psychology is awesome, but what am I going to do now? And I kind of just like went online trying to find interesting things to do. And I was like, oh, web development looks cool. I could do that. So um, I studied web development for a year at Humber, and then um, I started working at Sapient as a web developer. That was really interesting uh, in that I worked mostly on websites, on the digital side of things, worked on a lot of different things, but 
It was also my first time working with designers, UX designers and uh, visual designers. Mm. And I just kind of uh, spent a lot of time working with them. I felt like they were kind of like my people. Like they were, we talked a lot about like how uh, users might think about their perspectives. And I was like, I kind of want to do this. I feel like I could do this. Eventually, I, I convinced my very supportive um, director to let me kind of dabble in both. And eventually, I moved over to to UX. Now, usually when I think about designers that are working like at an ad agency, that's what, what Sapien is. It's more so like visual design or art director or creative director. But you were working on the development side. So they had like an in-house team, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. So we'd work on different accounts. Yeah, creating their their websites or um like digital campaign, like mini microsites and things like that. And you said this is your first time kind of working with UX designers and such. Did that give you a a greater sense of like the type of work that you could be doing? Yeah. Um I had no idea that that job even existed. I think I always I always have loved like creativity. I love art. I took art in grade eleven, grade twelve. I, I took art as often as I could. I would go to art classes, but there was this one art class I took where the teacher told me I had no technical talent. And uh, I, I kind of Damn. believed her. So for years, I know, right? she was kind <laughs> of right. She was kind of right. But for years, I felt like I couldn't even broach that world. I didn't draw anymore. I didn't paint anymore. I was never very good, but there were fun things to do outside of work. But uh, for the first time, I saw design through a lens of not necessarily being stuff, like making pretty things, mm-hmm. but working on creating products and, and functional things that could exist in the real world, in the digital world. And I felt like I I was more able to do that. Like, I'm not going to be able to produce a beautiful oil painting rendering of you, but I can definitely de- like design a landing page or like a form. So I think like that kind of work really appeals to me. It, it feels very logical in a way that appeals to me, but also creative in that you're bringing together these elements and in a way that kind of makes sense for your audience. But to me, it's like the most creative job, even though you're not necessarily making like uh, anything visually, like groundbreaking or anything. Now, back then, were you focused on like inclusive design and accessibility, or is that something which kind of came about later on in your career? I think starting as a developer working on on web accessibility, it definitely was the lens through which I, I always wanted to work in in UX design, product design. And it was kind of how I made my case in that we didn't have a lot of people who are specializing in accessibility, but even fewer who did that from the product design side of things. So I was able to make a case for that need on the team mm-hmm. by, by working on things through that lens. Now, after you were working at, at Sapient, you worked at Shopify for a while, which you kind of mentioned a bit earlier. Tell me about that experience. I've heard that their internal design culture there is really good. Is that what, what your experience was like? Yeah, I, I felt like their culture was really, really intentional. And it kind of presented design through a different lens for me yet again. That's when I started thinking of design, not only looking like building interfaces, but building your team, building very intentional relationships with your partners in product management and development. Yeah, definitely very intentional, definitely lots of process behind the way that things were done. It was a really, really nice way to broaden my horizons, I feel. It was it was a really good experience. Yeah. And from a design perspective. What sort of things were you working on there at Shopify? At Shopify I specifically worked on Shopify Fulfillment Network, which um rest in peace, 
they had a recent round of layoffs, which is basically shedding that part of the company. But mm. it was um, kind of their answer to Amazon fulfillment. It was enabling uh, merchants, small merchants, to ship out things from warehouses, from centralized locations. And I felt like design was just taken very seriously there. I was working on a project to build like a, a system for the warehouse. And so I started by requesting a visit to the warehouse because I had never visited a warehouse before. And so I went to a warehouse. I worked there for a couple of days, chatted with all the folks on the ground and yeah, got to experience the warehouse through their eyes, I guess. And, and then I went to start doing the design work, but it felt like they took it so seriously. They actually listened to me. They actually let me experience what I was designing for. And that was really cool. That's still, I think, one of the most maybe uh, interesting projects I've worked on. I feel like it was kind of like that seminal project that I worked on that made me officially a designer, you know? Mm, I get what you're saying. Yeah, sometimes once you start to get that internal validation, or rather, I would say once you get that external validation from your team with that the work that you're doing is making that impact, it does so much for morale. It does so much for sort of just building yourself up as a designer to know that you are making good decisions and that you're doing good work. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it brought that aspect of maybe what I love about psychology, getting to understand other people into it. It wasn't just sitting in a room and I guess uh, making decisions from afar. Yeah. Now you're also currently working on a book about intersectionality and design, which we'll get to, but before we talk about that, I'd love for you to kind of give your definition of like inclusive design. Like what does it mean to you and why is it something that other designers should be sort of aware of as they work? I think inclusive design to me is going beyond just compliance and following accessibility laws and making sure you're up to code. It's about truly designing for a variety of experiences to make a good experience for the variety of users that you have whether that's users with disabilities or users without disabilities, maybe users with temporary or situational disabilities. But for me, specifically bringing intersectionality into it is what I thought of a lot after that, you know, those few rounds of hate mail. I think that word is so often kind of divorced from where it initially came from. Intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw, like that whole thing was about the multiple types of oppression that Black women experience, right? Like, the misogyny and the racism, how does that intersect to create like a unique social experience for Black women? Like, let's pivot and look at accessibility in that same way. How does being disabled and being a Black person, being a brown person, being an immigrant, how do those things intersect to create a unique experience of disability, of, of exclusion? But kind of bringing Black folks back into that conversation, I've had experiences where I've seen people use the word intersectionality and never do they even mention Kimberly Crenshaw or Black people, which I'm like, that's 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 wild. That's where the word came from. <laughs> so um, I think we need to have those conversations. I think we need to acknowledge where this word came from, what the concept means. Kimberly Crenshaw, shout out to her. She is still making books. She's still writing things. She's still talking about this. Like We need to acknowledge where this term came from and what it actually means. Now, how does this sort of factor into the work that you're doing with your book? Is it kind of expounding on this in terms of design? Yeah, I think what I'm hoping to do is, is have more conversations about this, get people thinking about it, get people to understand that just like a lot of other places in tech, in which we have kind of our dominant group in society, white men driving things, it's the same thing in the disability movement right now, in the, in the accessibility movement right now, that needs to shift in order 
for the accessibility movement to truly be helpful for people who are not kind of the dominant societal group, right? People of color, immigrants are more likely to be disabled because of things like environmental racism, less access to essential health care. It absolutely is an important conversation to have because we make up so much of the body of disabled people in in our countries. I remember like super early conversations around web accessibility back when I was, oh God, I, I keep aging myself when I say these things. <laughs> like Back when I was like designing websites in 2005 and even just trying to advocate for alt text on images and being told that, oh, well, that's only for like disabled people and, and like they're not really using the web and stuff like that. And I know that a lot of the technology around accessibility has increased, especially as browsers have gotten better. But I remember when it was just like pulling teeth to get people to even consider accessibility when it came to their work. They just wanted to make interesting, cool stuff online and didn't think about anybody but just impressing, I don't know, other designers or friends of theirs, not thinking about who the people were that could possibly be using the thing that you're designing. Yeah, and I think in some circles, that's still the situation, unfortunately. But I think a lot of people maybe don't know people who are disabled, or like a lot of folks don't maybe or didn't know people who are Black in the past, and that kind of painted their worldview on on who Black people are. But if you know people who are disabled, like anyone else, people who are disabled just want to have their independence and um, be able to do things that everyone else does. So if we don't make our, our banking website accessible, like the consequence of that is the real world consequence is that someone out there needs to trust a third party to handle their money. And that's not really a situation that would be acceptable to anyone else. So why should we subject disabled people to that experience? Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely think that things like laws and getting sued and lawsuits are a a big reason why people are starting to care. Um, Companies (laughs) are starting to care. Net, net, honestly, if that's what gets them to make their websites accessible, that's fine with me. Be nice if it came from a place of this is what's right, but if it's going to come from the law, that's cool too. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, having that accountability is is unfortunately the only way that some companies are going to make that happen. Like they have to be fined or, you know, otherwise censured in order for them to actually take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if that's what gets us where we need to be and having the right conversations, I can I can look at that. There's a book on inclusive design written by Regina Gilbert, who's been, she's been on the show a few times, actually, yes. who wrote Inclusive Design for a Digital World. Really great book if you know people are listening and they want to just learn more about this. They should check that out. But I'm super interested in seeing what your book is going to be like when it comes out, because I think definitely what you mentioned with intersectionality and race as it relates to design is something that is still super important, especially during this current I guess you could say in the U.S. this current political climate, but I think it's it's probably worldwide or, or starting to become worldwide as it relates to things like critical race theory and things like that, where things are being either rewritten or omitted that just leave race out of it or completely rewrite history in, in some odd ways. So I'm really going to be interested to see the reception that your book gets once it's out. I am interested in seeing myself finish writing it. So I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely keep you posted. I'm excited to have this conversation, hopefully uh, get less hate mail this time. But yeah, the fact that people have reacted so strongly to conversations about that tells me that we need to have more of those conversations. And um, it's something that that we're not talking about enough right now, but 
we definitely have folks who are starting to build that a conversation. So I'm excited to join the chat. So between your product design work that you're doing at Meta, you're writing this book. I think you also mentioned a bit earlier that you're you're in a, another educational program. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm starting a Master's of Inclusive Design program at OCAD U. So uh, kind of a funny name, but Ontario College of Art and Design University. It recently became a university. I'm so, so excited about that. It's a really small program, but it's been really um, foundational in the accessibility and inclusive design community. And I'm excited to, to be surrounded by people who have done a lot of thought in this area and just to absorb their knowledge and learn from them. Yeah, I know uh, Dr. Dory Tunstall was the dean there. She just came out with a book recently called Decolonizing Design. But I think yes. she, yeah, I think she recently stepped out and there's another Black woman or, or BIPOC woman that's that's stepping up as dean, I think. Yeah, Dory's amazing. I, I ran into her on the street in Toronto once and I uh, talked to her for a while and she was super nice and didn't treat me <laughs> like I was like a weirdo. But she played a huge part in the creation of this program, actually. And in making it actually truly inclusive. This program has like remote and asynchronous options. It has options for folks who have to work while doing the program. And I've never really come across a program quite like that. So um, when Dory says inclusive design, Dory means inclusive design. That's awesome. Yeah, I had her on the show back in, oh God, 2015, maybe? She's like episode 107 or something like that. At the time, she was still teaching in Australia. She was still mm-hmm. teaching in uh, at Swinburne. This is before she came back to North America. So it's been amazing to see just her glow up and change and, and really how fiercely she's advocated for decolonizing design and inclusivity in her work. It's been really a powerful thing yeah. to see. Yeah. And it's one thing to say it, but actually doing it and creating a course that's actually centered around being inclusive and providing multiple ways of learning where you're able to co-design your education, like that's just walking the walk. And I really admire that. I never come across another uh, higher education program like that. And I hope other programs take note and we can see more options for inclusive education. So Tolu, what does your downtime look like? I mean, I imagine a lot of this work takes up a lot of just like brain space and, and things like that. Like, what do you do in your downtime? I'm working on that. I feel like I've been called uh, by people in my life a bit of a workaholic. And I'm trying to just uh, find hobbies that do not necessarily relate to my work. I've been doing some photography lately, which is which is fun. I really love plants, I'm trying to spend more time outside, but also watching movies, shows. I've, again, like, I feel like you really can't unsee inclusive design right now. I'm watching I'm a Virgo, about a 13 foot tall uh, black man from Oakland trying to find his way in the world. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoy things like that. I need to get out more, but I, I love movies. I love film. I need to catch I Am Virgo. I know it, it just came out, I think, last month. Well, we're recording in July. This will air in September, but I think it came out like June-ish, something like that. I need to check it out because I've heard it's really good. I've never seen anything like it. It's amazing. <laughs> what are some pieces of advice that you kind of find yourself coming back to? This could be like life advice, career advice, etc. This sounds kind of silly, but I say this. I think this is a quote from Winston Churchill, who was otherwise very problematic. But when you're going through hell, keep going. Honestly, whenever something weird happens, something uh, demotivating happens, I just I just think of that and I find it incredibly motivating. If you're in hell, why would you stop there? Like you got to keep going so you at least like move yourself out of hell. I'm not saying I'm in hell, but 
I find that quote really <laughs> motivating, and uh, I think a bit often. Who are some of the like mentors that have that have kind of helped you out in your career? And these could be, you know, peers as well. But who are some people that have really kind of helped you to get to where you are today? Oh my gosh! Basically, everyone you've talked to on this podcast. But I've been lucky enough to have some really amazing mentors in my time. Um, the person who I worked with at my first company, Allison Walton, who got me started in web accessibility. Amazing, amazing mentor. Zoltan Haraluk, who I worked with as a developer. I still, I got to do someone once a month. Just people who have been in the industry for a really long time have taught me so much. Tori Hargrove, who works at Meta, has been such an incredible mentor to me. He's amazing and he's so accessible even at his level, which, which is amazing. I work with a designer called Alexis Cotton, who has just been an incredible, an incredible mentor to me. I've learned so much from her about how to show up. She's a really unique and interesting person. And I feel really lucky to have access to all these people who have made themselves so available. And yeah, it's, it's very humbling. And I don't think I'd be, um, I'd be doing the things I'm doing now if it wasn't for those folks. I'm going to text Tori and I'm going to let him know that I talked to you <laughs> for oh the God, show. Oh my message him and tell him that I talked to you. When you think back on your career and, and sort of what you've learned to get to this point, and I think you may have somewhat answered this earlier, but like, what are you still working on unlearning as you grow as a designer? I'm trying to unlearn that kind of being a wallflower, being humble, minimizing and shrinking myself to be palatable. I think it's going to be a long process of unlearning, but yeah, I'm trying to just show up more. I look around at my peers and kind of how they show up in rooms and how they take up space. And I'm like, I should take up that space too. And I think a lot of women struggle with this in general, but I want to take up more space and I want to show up as that person who, yeah, who just puts themselves out there and doesn't need to shrink themselves to like make a version of them that they feel like is palatable to the people around them. Do you have like a dream project or something that you'd love to work on one day? Honestly, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. My dream project is talking about inclusive design and intersectionality and like where, where Black people, where people of color, where immigrants fit into this design story. Well, as you look, you know, kind of into the future, of course, you know, like you said, you're still working on this book, you're in this program. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what does Tolu in 2028 going to be doing? I see myself deleting a lot of hate mail. Uh, I see myself <laughs> having, having Hopefully more than that. Hopefully more than that. <laughs> I see myself having more conversations about these things, about it becoming more of a mainstream conversation, I think. In the larger tech community, we're definitely at the point where we're talking about needing more diverse representation. I'm really hoping we can talk about that in the inclusive design community as well. I see myself growing, helping other folks in the way people have helped me. It's funny you mentioned that. I feel like uh, ever since the pandemic, I've learned to think a lot more short term. Back then, I couldn't even plan like two weeks ahead. And so I, right now, I'm, I'm focusing a lot more on what's on my plate. Look. I'm right there with you. People ask me now about stuff to do in October. And I'm like, do I want to do that in October? Like, what? Like, where am I going to be in October? So I think we're all in a, in a lot of ways still kind of trying to come out of this, this pandemic and think about the future. But it feels like with what you're doing, I mean, your path is set. It feels like if you keep on this 
this path now of working on inclusive design. I mean, I think you've got a bright future ahead, especially as we look at things like Web3, the metaverse, other social media platforms, things of that nature. There's just going to be more and more opportunities because the web is expanding in a way to include everyone that it just hasn't before because technology is changing. Yeah, there's a new frontier. There's the Wild West where no one has ever done these things before. And there's definitely a lot of conversations to be had about how to make these completely new things inclusive and accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely am super excited about the people who are around me at Meta. There's actually surprisingly a huge number of, of Black folks at Meta now. Kind of starting with Tori, I think he was actually the first Black designer on Facebook, which is pretty wild. But I definitely look around work and I feel like they're the right people around to help on that path, the right mentors. And that feels really awesome. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and your work? Where can they find you online? My website is tolu.xyz. Tolu is T-O-L-U. My threads handle slash Instagram is the same, tolu.xyz. Email, I'm also on LinkedIn. You can't find me really anywhere else. I'm trying to, um, (laughs) I'm trying to reduce the amount of things that I consume. So those are probably the best ways to find me also via email, old fashioned. Well, you you also have the distinction of being the first person on the show to mention that they can be found on threads. <laughs> that feels pretty awesome. <laughs> I hopefully uh, future guests will follow that trend. Well, Tolu, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. So great to learn more about you and about your work. And, you know, like I said, the web is expanding in many different ways, you know, virtual reality, et cetera. And the work that you're doing just speaks to the greater need to include everyone in the conversation. So I really hope that with the work that you're doing, that we are all moving forward and closer to to fulfilling that goal. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Tolu Adekbite. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Tolu and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design, and the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please let us know. 
We're on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify or Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Or you could leave us a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Um, well,